Hello and welcome to Simusir Science, the podcast where we chat to people of a scientific persuasion about their life, their work, and their passion all over a couple of beers. In this case, we're here in the morning in the UK. We're probably having coffee or water or tea, I suppose. I'm Stilly. And I'm Lou, and we are two PhD students in the CIMI lab, which is a collaborative lab which utilizes the merger of multiple disciplines to study the interaction between cells, materials, and proteins, and all of this to gain a fundamental insight into engineering cell behavior. Our guest today was awarded an OBE for his extraordinary contribution on tackling issues surrounding the use of antipersonnel mines. His work was culminated in the Ottawa Treaty in 1997 when his charity, the Mines Advisory Group, or MAG, in collaboration with Princess Diana, managed to get 120 nations to sign the treaty banning anti-personnel mines. In 1997, his charity was the co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. We would like to welcome today Lou McGrath, OBE, CEO of the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation, which continues to alleviate the effect of landmines on affected countries. Hi, Lou. We're so glad to have you today. Hi, thank you very much. Very well, could I just correct that introduction because I don't want people to actually think that I did this all by myself. The actual international campaign to ban landmines, of which I was one of the many over a thousand civil society groups eventually came together. It was formed in 1991 by seven organisations of which MAG was one of those organisations. But the international campaign to ban landmines was, along with Jody Williams, who was the coordinator, received the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in bringing about 120 countries to sign a treaty which banned the use, production and export of all anti-personnel mines. So I I just had to make that quite clear (laughs) because it sounded like I'd overdone what I actually did do. (laughs) Thank you for correcting it. So, so Matt and Manuel, when, whenever they, they were telling us that whenever you come over to Glasgow, they bring you out for dinner the day before and you have some, some nice food. Uh, what would you say your favorite restaurant that you've been to in Glasgow is and the favorite cuisine you've tried with, uh, with Matt and Manuel over here is? If you do not know Matt and Manuel, there are two professors at the University of Glasgow who work together with Lou McGrath and the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation to tackle the physical problems that landmine survivors might have, such as broken bones due to explosions. If you'd like to know more about their research, make sure you check out the first episode of the CME Serious Science podcast. And now, back to the interview. Uh, do you know it's it seems so long ago now, but we went I think it's called the West End and we went to this down this little narrow street which actually reminded me of somewhere in Vietnam. We actually went to a Vietnamese restaurant. Hanoi bike shop. Yeah, Hanoi bike shop. Yeah, bike shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. It's really, it's I love really that. Lovely. So whenever, I mean, they've introduced me to quite a few places of which, unfortunately, I forget the name of uh, or names of. They always surprise me with their culinary knowledge. Although, having said that, I think Manuel's vegetarian, isn't he? Maybe he's vegan. He does drink wine, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was telling us that you really enjoy wine from Catalonia as well. Like, I do. So? I do. He Interestingly, I found out a bit more about Catalonia. My sister-in-law is from Catalonia. They live in a place just outside Tarragona. Uh, but it was only when I was talking to Manuel that I learned that Valencia is also part originally of Catalonia although that's not always shown as being such. So, yes, that was something I wasn't aware of. Uh, And, of course, he can speak Catalan as well, 
maybe you could actually get him to do a lecture in Catalan and see if... Oh, we should totally do we that. We should actually. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if Valencia was originally part of Catalonia as well. Yeah, well, um, that's one of the things he told me. Uh, I mean, maybe he was trying to claim the wine. I'm not sure about that <laughs> so far. <laughs> Uh, but I, I also, talking of wine, I also like the nice Riocas as well, in, of course, French wines. and Well, lots of different wines from different countries. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favourite at the moment? I always like uh, Southern Rhone wines. Oh, nice. Mm. Yeah. I'm not, you know, totally partial to them. That's... <laughs> talking about wine one of my friends uh, she's uh, from scotland but she made she lives in glasgow and she made the most glaswegian uh, social media wine channel ever where she rates wines based on how quickly they get you drunk so, <laughs> so, <laughs> the guzzability scale <laughs> so, uh, so yeah she she rates them out of 10 like how the 10 out of 10 would be she calls it the blackout rating. How quickly they <laughs> aren't they? Aren't they all under ten pounds as well? Yeah, they are all under ten pounds. They have to be. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some great. of them are under three pounds. Ah, <laughs> 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 yeah, very true. Um, yeah. But so so you've been all around the world, the world, and we were wondering because you're into wine and into food as well. What would you say is one of the most underrated cuisines that people that is underappreciated? One of the foods I like is actually Khmer food, which quite often people think of Southeast Asia and they think of Thai food, which is always very spicy, very chilly, hot. Although it borders up to Thailand, Cambodia is very subtle food. They make really nice soups. They don't overspice their food. So you can taste these very interesting different flavors from the different fruits or vegetables or, or leaves that they use. I do like Khmer food, and, and it's probably not well known in this country go over to Cambodia then try the food there that's it's good yeah it's one of the countries on the top of my travel list I used to read a lot about it when I was in high school so but never had the opportunity or the strong enough sun cream to really oh you'll be fine there (laughs) they they wear what's called what they call cremars it's a type of scarf like you can put this on your head but when you're working out in the field, you can put these around you. Or with the bigger ones, you can have it around here and you can carry the baby while you're working. Kramars are very important to Khmer life. So uh, I was wondering if we could ask how work began with the, the anti-personnel mines and dearming them. I learned about the major issues through my, my brother. We'd both been in the army, him a lot longer than me. When he left the army, he did some work for the UN. It was just after the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. When the Russians were leaving in 1989, there were many refugees in Peshawar in Pakistan who were desperate to go back to Afghanistan. Many of these had land, which was farmland, uh, that they could hopefully get back into life and bring up their family and start growing their own food once again. What, what happened was that when they got back to their farmland, and lots of these people were encouraged by the international community through UNHCR to travel back to bring down the refugee crisis in Pakistan. But they were being sent back to their land, which had been littered with anti-personnel landmines. And the reason they were littered with anti-personnel landmines was because the Mujahideen, who were fighting the Russians supported by the West, were able to get food from the farms or utilize that land or, or water or whatever. 
So the Russians used anti-personnel mines and scattered them from helicopters around the fields. It was from his experience of seeing a young boy on a visit where tragically his family had carried him for days, 13-year-old boy, his body was shattered, he was still alive, my brother was present and um, the family begged him to take photographs and show the world what had been done to this poor boy who had been farming his field when he touched a tripwire. This landmine was what they call a POM Z, and a POM Z is a bit like a, a hand grenade on a stick. They're chocolatecated, if you like. That weakens it. When you touch the tripwire, it pulls the pin out and it detonates. And this, all those pieces of metal break up and become dum-dum bullets because they're flat. And they fired at ballistic speed in every direction. And this young boy, his whole body was shattered. His bones were broken. And my brother took the photograph and he died a couple of hours later. And it had a profound effect on him. So we decided, he contacted me and we needed to announce this problem to the world and that maybe we should gather information. And the idea being was to gather information and hopefully the international community would, what we thought the UN would do, uh, would be to send in soldiers to clear the landmines. Unfortunately, the world doesn't work like that. From the survey that we did in Afghanistan, formed the Mines Advisory Group. That was why we called ourselves the Mines Advisory Group, because there was no intention to clear them landmines as an organisation. We, we then met up with other organisations Handicap International, Physicians for Human Rights, Medico International, Vietnam Veterans Foundation, uh, and Mines Advisory Group, and Human Rights Watch. We formed the international campaign to ban landmines. And this was before the internet. So everything was done by fax and telephone and meetings and to be able to bring on board civil society from mine-affected countries, lots of countries in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in the poorer regions of South America, all infected with landmines, which had come about because of the Cold War. Landmines were a, an easy weapon. They were cheap to produce. And because we were fighting off a nuclear war between the East and the West, we used other countries to fight our wars in. In Angola, the country between what was the Marxist government and UNITA was the rebel group, as it were, supported by the West. And we both sides supplied each side with landmines. All over the world, wars were being fought by proxy uh, on the basis that it would save a nuclear war happening between the East and the West. In reality, if you look at the history of Vietnam, you know, you can go back to President Kennedy's speech where he announced that he would save the Laotians uh, from the communists, the communist hordes. And that led to him bombing a country which was basic agricultural society and destroying many ancient temples and buildings, and they bombed it for nine years. So all these things led to the fact that in 1992, we'd just had the Gulf War in which Saddam Hussein had left millions of landmines supplied to him by Western companies. And when we encouraged the Kurdish people to stand up and fight against Saddam Hussein, we failed to back them. He went in and he littered landmines all over their beautiful parts of the country. So that's where we set up our first demining program. I think we've seen so many things in our life 
that it's why you feel so passionate about any of the countries I've been to where there is a major anti-personnel landmine problem have never manufactured them, have never exported them. And yet people have been killed, lost limbs. They're indiscriminate, so they don't... No one chooses who is going to be the victim. You become the person who decides by putting your foot down somewhere on the earth that someone laid maybe 10 or 20 years or 30 years ago and you become the victim and you weren't even born when the war started or finished. That was the horrific nature of the weapon. Yeah, I mean, you don't forget things and you see many awful things, not just obviously landmines because war brings about terrible things and we're seeing refugees from Syria, we're seeing the awful uh, situation going on in Yemen and the appalling way in which we casually talk about you know, sort of dealing with arms with Saudi Arabia, which are actually killing and maiming men, women and children. I wanted to ask a question in regards to this, because in the end, in 997, well, the organization you were part of at the time with other people, they managed to get 120 nations together to sign an anti-personnel treaty. But Reading, uh, reading different accounts from that, what is really disappointing is that although a great victory was won in regards to anti-personnel mines that day, it seems like countries were trying to find loopholes within the treaty to use different weapons or slightly modified versions of, of, of mines to still use completely out of the spirit of this treaty. And it's, it's so disappointing, and I see that governments continue doing that with various topics like greenwashing policies or the whole, I don't know, fair trade. Um, and I just wanted to ask, based on this and also based on all the facts that all the things you've seen, how do you keep being motivated if governments exhibit that sort of behavior? And how are you not discouraged by seeing all these injustices and like these behaviors from governments are completely out of the spirit of, uh, of what we're trying to achieve here? To be honest, I think yeah, there was only 120 countries signed up at the time. Now there's um, 170 countries, I think, now signed up to the treaty. Manufacturing landmines is only taking place in certain situations. Uh, certain countries using landmines has been turned into somewhat of a pariah for some of the key manufacturers however <laughs> when it comes to wars people will use anything they can get their hands on and interestingly it's people who are educated who develop and devise weapons you can move Manuel out of his engineering to his engineering devices He's chosen a path of curing and helping people. Some people choose another path, and that is to devise and develop weapons that kill. Many of the people I was involved in the international campaign to ban landmines have gone on to bring about a change to the cluster munition treaty. Cluster munitions are weapons that are dropped out of planes in a huge casing and then which opens up and then scatters small amounts of round balls of weapons that splinter up form shrapnel and kill anyone within the range of that one munition someone devised that someone devised the way in which it's loaded on the plane it's kept mechanically sound and then when it reaches a certain height, it opens up and then it has a way of initiating the fuse so that when it hits the ground or at a certain level above the ground, that it'll explode. Now that takes very intelligent engineering mind to develop it. 
you always have to look at the people around you and say, you know, what will you end up doing? What will you end up, will you end up in a white coat in a lab helping people or will you end up in a factory like Valsella in Italy? Years ago, there was a, an interesting program that was on TV called World in Action and they did a program on the development of the landmines that were used in that were killing Kurdish people and lots of other people around the world. But they were developed in a factory in Italy. They were making one particular mine called a bounding fragmentation mine, which when it exploded, if you touch the tripwire, it went up to the air by a meter and then pull the main body up half a meter and then exploded and sent a thousand ball bearings in all directions at ballistic speed. So it would kill anyone within the range. To do that, they actually found film, people working, designing these on a computer in Italy, uh, and they were the factory that were designing the mines for these to be made. And then there's a man in this country who's very wealthy. His name has been mentioned many times. I'm not sure if you can do it on the podcast, but he was responsible for actually exporting the mines from Italy to Saddam Hussein, who used them against the Kurds. like government bodies or, or bodies like the UN should specifically be preventing this but I feel like there's probably been a couple historical things where the UN in what its nature or what its ethos is should have stepped in and prevented something from occurring and they haven't so how do you make something like the UN work or or is well, the UN ever going to be the only people who can make the UN work are civil society the treaty that was brought about, which is now signed in, into international law and is monitored by the United Nations. But it was all brought about by ordinary people in many countries getting together under one banner and putting pressure on their own governments to bring about a ban and exposing politicians, business people, scientists who were developing these weapons. It's civil society that makes the UN work. It's not the countries, it's not the UN itself, it's civil society putting pressure on where pressure is needed and actually forcing their way into meetings to actually see that things are done. Is it okay if we ask you about the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation and yeah, how do, so yeah. how you are actually tackling this? <laughs> so, well, our job at the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation, you know, Sir Bobby was a gentleman who experienced his own problems during the Munich air disaster. And, of course, he's quite a humanitarian person himself. Wasn't a great shouter about issues, but behind the scenes will do a lot. And back in 2008, he went out to Cambodia to deliver football kits on behalf of the one of the foundations that was involved in supporting young people. Cambodia had, had a terrible situation following several conflicts, including the Khmer Rouge and the fighting from uh, Vietnam and the American bombings. Prior to that, the French. So over the years, Cambodia had suffered terribly long after the wars were over once again people were still being killed and still are today while sir bobby was there he actually visited mag who were clearing a minefield in batambang province and he put on the ballistic vest and helmet and walked in with the Khmer staff who were clearing the minefield. I think his emotion was more what he had seen amongst the children 
children who had lost limbs and found out that it was an anti-personnel mine that had blown this child's leg off or, you know, saw farmers trying to plough the field with a limb missing or always seemed to be the people who lived in the most difficult conditions anyway. And before he left Cambodia, uh, he determined to himself that he wanted to do something. And his focus was more to do with wanting to see that people got proper medical attention, you know, people got proper support, and something that would be more sustainable, retraining people so they could make a living to actually make a difference to their lives and it was through that that he initially set up an organization called find a better way i'd met sir bobby on several occasions when i was the ceo of mag we offered support to help him set up his organization and some of that was to do with looking at research projects in developing detection systems. And he also wanted to look at other ways that he could provide support where people could be helped if they'd been in a traumatic explosion or how do you help them from being, you know, there's people who can't fit a prosthesis. How do you do something about that? And that was where... He'd heard about the idea that you could grow bone in the future. So we put it out to a competition. We had a panel of experts who had several universities presenting, and myself and Bobby were observers to that. We had to say the most impressive were Glasgow and the... The project proposed by uh, Manuel and Matt sounded what was going to be the type of thing that we saw could assist people in the near term, not the too long term, but obviously realising that it's not that near, you know, there's a lot of work to go through. I just remember Matt Dolby explaining about the, the nano kick and talking about outer space. And the dryness of someone like Manuel who explains to you about printing and how this could work with cells and da-da-da-da. I mean, I'm a total novice to it, but I've learned so much from visiting and talking. But this impressed Sir Bobby. He was determined that the experts would... And the experts did choose, of course, the University of Glasgow, and uh, we both felt that went away very happy. That was my first experience when I decided that, you know, I'd really like to work with Sir Bobby, and they offered me to become the CEO. We wanted to try and also look at the humanitarian, the research, and look at how it was interconnected and not just, you know, someone sitting in a lab at the university. So Bobby is someone who has given us something to see that lots of things are possible for refugees who are living outside their country, suffer terrible trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder and he feels all this and he's emotive about it it drives you to say well there must be someone who can do something about this and hence we got involved with University College London and post-traumatic stress that they'd been working on when I met them they were I nearly said just as mad as (laughs) just just as bad as uh, Matt and, and their explanation <laughs> because they they came up with, you know, well, ha- we could stop it happening, you know, like it could be like a first aid. So if you knew where the part of the brain that re- brought about reoccurring memory and you were at the point of the accident and you could introduce first aid like you would a bandage or anything else, by 
giving these people immediate release that stopped that memory sticking in that part of the brain. I mean, you've got to be mad to think of that idea. <laughs> it's so <But>, sci-fi. <laughs> but they're the type of things that Bobby liked, you know, people thinking outside the box. And, you know, uh, I think that's where he was able to bring in money from different areas to help support these projects which would have struggled to get funding to get them off the ground. But if we could come in at the beginning and get them off the ground so they had enough time to prove themselves, then we could convince people that it was sound, that these weren't just mad people. Man, well, and mad. <laughs> well, you know, we're normal people. <laughs> Good ideas. I think it's Bobby who drove that side of the charity, you know, to make us look at those things. And apart from wanting to see that we could create centres in countries where people were still struggling from the impact of war or where people were refugees living outside their country while the war continued. What support do they get? You know, refugee camps are awful places. It, it's terrible what we've become used to. There were many things we did to support refugees fleeing Europe, you, you know, prior to the, the Second World War. Today, we just see them as people who are after our wealth or after our... And we, you know, we're not as humane as we should be. And that's one thing Sir Bobby is. He's humane. It's very refreshing to hear that because, especially even in academia, often grants or, like, or projects are funded depending on the prestige of a university or the prestige of a researcher. But sometimes... The really good ideas, even if they come from like a smaller place or a small university, kind of stay hidden or in the background. They never see the light of day because a lot of people just like gravitate towards the prestige often. And it's really refreshing to hear that you're not choosing based on that, but you're uh, choosing based on like this vision that's, that a person has and, and that thinking outside the box. And I'm just... surprised to know that the the money that Sir Bobby managed to get to actually fund the Glasgow project came from the LIBOR funds, and that came from the fining of the banks by the government. He was able to persuade the Chancellor at the time to use that money for charitable purpose. And so it's nice to see that that money is being transferred into something good, and that was Sir Bobby's. That, that is so awesome. Money is often involved and is like a driving force for many things in, in the world. Sometimes in a good way and, so, and often also it can be a very bad motivator. I, it's undeniable that a lot of wars are occurring because money gets in the way and it can corrupt people in a way. Like it kind of makes them lose their focus. An interesting example is the Boeing 737 MAX, uh, the crashes that occurred a couple of years ago. Boeing company lost its way because it, it started wanting to please stakeholders more and more rather than making the great engineered planes, especially after their merger with McDonnell Douglas, they started uh, changing as a company. They started being a lot more profit-focused rather than engineering-focused. And I'm just interested to know, as a CEO of, in your case, of, of the show Bobby Charlton Foundation of a charity, how do you stay true to your focus and true to your goal? I mean, obviously, it's not the same. A charity is not the same as like a for-profit company, obviously. But there's still there's still money involved. Growing up in Greece, one of the biggest apprehensions of people giving to charity is because there has been corruption in the past or there has been people, uh, despite saying they're a charity, they're like kind of like taking the money of people and using it mostly to fund yeah, themselves. Yeah. And but you're not really doing this. You're like investing in, in, in really cool projects and like trying to approach the topic from a holistic perspective, funding, uh, putting 
money into mental health research and also into into all, all, all areas that involve minds and how to avoid the problem or solve the problem. How do you do that? How do you stay focused on this on this goal? Yeah, I, I suppose um, you, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I grew up just after the war. I was surrounded uh, as I grew up by bomb sites in Liverpool. And uh, I mean, everything I do in my life now, my father was a very, I would say, human person. And he brought us up. We were a large family. We didn't have much money, but we were interested in social issues. We were interested in how everyone deserves to live a life, not necessarily in a rich way or in anything other than without fear. For me, it's just natural to ensure that what you do, you know, I wouldn't work for something that I didn't see was actually solving issues for people so it's about the driving force about your own self wanting to see that compassion for your fellow people is important for me you know for the sake of for the sake of a few dollars more why would you want to change that the the rewards for money are minimal in comparison to the rewards you get from living with people in a happy, safe society. And seeing people live in a happy and safe society is important. So you can bribe me all you want, but, you know... (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing to hear that there is people like you in, in heading big uh, charities in, the, in your case that are really passionate and like non-corruptible as well you know just watch the bottles of wine that you <laughs> <laughs> just to, just off of what you said so um we unfortunately lost my husband's grandparents this year um and they were i think it, you, you appreciate it more after they've passed just what titans they were in social change in their in their homes. They were they were more about reproductive rights and stuff in, in Delaware in the U.S. and they they headed the ACLU there. And uh, one thing that came up during a memorial service is uh, someone asked uh, his grandfather Jim. He, they asked like, "Well, you know, you're you're so big. You're like such a big person in in all these changes, and you've you've." spearheaded so much of it you know what what's your advice to like the little guys like me and and joe said to live a gem of a life how do you understand living a gem of a life i think uh living a life is about not wanting too much for yourself but wanting a bit more for others you know you you when when you seek for yourself All you're doing is accumulating, and the best experience you can have is seeing others around you living a better time while, you know, accumulating and sitting on money or sitting on wealth or... It's... it's... it's just boring. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I I hate the idea of celebrity that we seem to have got ourselves into and that somehow celebrity is about how much they've got and people use sort of all sorts of things to make themselves look pretty and or as they perceive. And I imagine that your grandparents didn't do any of that. They just lived a life that, you know, they saw for others as well as themselves. So, you know, if they were that content, I would say they weren't accumulators. They were just people living a life. What do you think are the main 
barriers to change in our world right now? And also, what is next for the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation and, and yourself? I think the barriers to change are we need better better media. You know, we don't we don't actually report news. It's very hard to listen the tripe that you hear on morning news or rubbish that you hear when you know if you just put on the World Service or you put on the Al Jazeera or something you'd find out what was going on all around the world and we used to have good documentary programs we used to have lots of things that made people interested in not just our own country that were part of a global community it was a global community that brought about the the changes in the in the landmine problem and that's what we need we need to get back to a global community and we need to stop being selfish and you know talking about ourselves or talking about complete and utter rubbish magazine programming we need journalism to inform and revitalize people and get them involved in you know standing up for issues standing up for people and making their country and the world a better place and not just wanting to become a politician you know what you need are people who are who you know properly research and understand what the issues are we're used to just now texting and in short blurbs and then it's forgotten we look at the news on our phone and that's it that you know that's the news today those four little ones that come up or we need to change i'm not just saying society was any better before but we must go forward and not backward the most important thing in life is to look after the people who come after you that is the should be your driving force it's not it's we should leave everything in a better state than we found it in you know if you if you sold your house to someone and you trashed it before they came in wouldn't you feel ashamed? Wouldn't everyone feel ashamed about it? You know, that you did that. So, you know, um, I just think that we need to start thinking about the future. In the case of the Sir Bobby Charlton Foundation, we're working hard to expand our humanitarian side and support more people conflicts can be quite short but they take an awful time long time to get over weapons that are fired can be fired very quickly and scatter all over the place to clear that up takes a long long time meanwhile people have to live with that people have to suffer pain and injury from it our feeling is that we must continue to help refugees uh, we must expand our projects where we can uh, and we must encourage people. Obviously, we have to raise the resources to do that and continue to lobby the international community. Just this year, undertaking uh, research in Afghanistan, Cambodia and uh, one other country that we're, we're waiting to hear about where we will look at how over the last 20 years support to victims of conflict what support and what really has been done to help support people and we're doing that through uh, an organization called action on armed violence who the the research will last 12 months and we'll then take it to the united nations as evidence of the lack of support by governments to the conventions that they've signed up to. So that's our driving force this year. We 
are hoping to open up a new centre in Cambodia and we're looking at what we can do for the people in, in Iraq, in Mosul. Uh, we're hoping to open up a centre in Mosul. Uh, at the present time, we're training teachers to deliver risk education. We'll continue to do what we can to support other countries whose population is suffering from the impact of war. That's awesome. And I think what is really awesome is the fact that you're actually collaborating with, with and, te and training the individuals in these respective countries to, to help themselves, which I think is the definition of empowerment and looking after other people, I think. You know, it, the foundation is only very small because we believe that we need to use the maximum of, the, uh, of our funds to develop capacity within the countries themselves. So we're not becoming an international organization as such. We just bring in the expertise when we need it, who will be able to sustain programs in those countries. Our answer to this question reminds me so much of, and, uh, of this quote, one of my favorite quotes from a Greek poet that he gave during a no his Nobel speech when he received the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature. His name is Yorgos Seferis. And this reminded me when you said about taking care of other people, and that's our purpose. He said, in our gradually shrinking world, everyone is in need of all the others. We must look for human wherever we can find him. When on his way to Thebes, Oedipus encountered the Sphinx, his answer to its riddle was human. That simple word destroyed the monster. We have many monsters to destroy. Let us ponder the answer of Oedipus. I think that really, I, that just reminded me of this quote. I'd never be able to spell that. You need to jot it down for me <laughs> and email it to me. I'd like to see that quote. Uh, so before we we go, uh, before uh, I, we have some pictures we would like to discuss with you. Okay. Lou, do you want to take the lead on that? Oh, okay. So one of my favorite ones is, it looks like you're behind some cattle in a field. You're, you're holding something. You've got like a um, green scarf around. It looks like you're plowing a field, I'd say. Oh, uh, yeah. In, in <laughs> Cambodia, uh, uh, the... The farmer um, I went to see, we were helping set up um, a, a small holding for his family. And I was surprised to see he'd lost a leg, but he, he had a prosthetic limb. Uh, but actually, when he plowed the field with his uh, water buffalo, he actually did it with one on one leg because it was easier. I... I had to challenge myself to see if I could hold the water buffalo back while it ploughed the field. Oh, wow. On one leg. Uh, I, I must admit that I fell over a few times. I haven't got the photograph where I was covered in mud, but uh, <laughs> there's a few people who have, I think. It's amazing when you you look at someone doing something and it looks so easy, and then you try it yourself. You know, and he did that, you know, for four hours a day. And you just think, incredible. You know, the strength of a water buffalo is something else. And we have one final one. Picture of Princess Diana and yourself. She's looking at a, at a piece of paper and you're standing next you to her. You look a little nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking what? You look a little nervous next to her. <laughs> oh, do I? <laughs> a formidable woman. Actually, she was uh, quite an interesting woman. It's quite humorous as well. I imagine the one you're looking at is at the Royal Geographic Society in 1997, the year the treaty was signed. It was in June. It was 
the last time I saw her because she died in the September. I defended her in the newspaper against the Minister of Defence, Lord Soames, uh, who accused her of being political. He said that her getting involved with the landmine issue was her getting involved in politics. And I wrote, I think it was in the Telegraph or the Times, I can't remember, actually that she wasn't, wasn't being political at all. Parliament and the government had declared when they made a moratorium on landmines that they were a humanitarian issue and not a political issue. And therefore, she wasn't out of step with her duties as a royal who couldn't have been involved in making political statements. And she wrote to thank me following my letter, and I took the advantage of asking her to come and make a speech at the Royal Geographic Society, which we'd actually pretended that we'd already arranged, but we hadn't. And when she agreed that we... <laughs> We then arranged, and we had a photo photographer, fantastic mag photographer called Sean Sutton, uh, got him to put on a photographic exhibition, and we invited her along to uh, the photographic exhibition. We uh, worked with her on a speech that she could make about the landmine issue, and my brother and I went along and, you know, obviously supported her, and there were lots of people came and and it's quite sad to think that she was going to come to Cambodia the following year but obviously she was uh, she was killed in France that year oh wow that's, that's cool thank you so much uh, Lou for being on this podcast thank you for taking the time and answering our questions we had a really awesome time and it was super interesting Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. The music for this podcast was provided by Jaron Felaidi. You can find more of his work at operatet.com. That's O-P-P-R-E-T-T-E-T. You can find us on our on Instagram at that Schofield Girl and still live on Greece. And with that, I would like to thank you so much for listening and I hope you're staying safe and having a wonderful day.